Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy vet and journalist Phil Briggs here to share the fascinating stories from our military veterans. And you can find them all every day at ConnectingVets.com. Today, we're going to dine on a great subject, and that's careers, and we're going to meet a Marine who's earned many medals. And since his time in Vietnam, he's had as many impressive jobs. I recently saw Mr. Lynn Lauder on Fox News in Chicago, where he was being lauded for creating Rosie's Home Cooking, a diner in the greater Chicago area that has a brilliant World War II theme. And I learned that he's also the co-founder of the Veterans Business Project, where he and his partners work to help vets realize their dreams of owning their own business after the military. Look a little deeper and we'll find chapters of his story that include a post-military career as a successful attorney. But it's all been built from his formative days as a United States Marine. Before serving in the legal field as a JAG officer, he was enlisted. But his accomplishments moved him from the enlisted ranks to becoming a commissioned officer. And during Vietnam, he was the commander of Marine Corps Special Operations teams in combat, earning the Silver Star, the Bronze Star, and the Purple Heart. And there's another aspect we'll dive into later in this interview, where he, along with his fellow Spec Ops Marines of 1st Force Reconnaissance Company, developed a rigging system which we still see in use today, And so you can visualize it anytime you see a soldier being lifted into a helo from a chest-looking harness. It's called a spy rig. And, uh, well, we get to credit Mr. Louder with that. So let's jump on in and dine on today's subject, all puns intended there. And we'll spend time with Mr. Lynn Louder. Lynn, welcome to CBS Eye on Veterans. Thanks a lot, Phil. Really honored to be here. Thank you. Now let's go ahead and we'll hit the rewind button right off the top. We'll go back to the late 60s. You were a college football player 
and you wound up serving in the elite special operations community with Marine Force Recon. Share with me any memories from that era of your service. Well, I'm, I'm a small town downstate hick uh, here in the southern Illinois. Uh, from a, a young kid perspective, somehow I saw a Marine recruiting poster when I was very young. Those Marines in that snappy dress blue uniform it kind of burned into my brain. But I had a little football talent. actually got me on to Northern Illinois Universities where I played safety there. Uh, football was going fine, Phil. Academics, yeah, I didn't care so much for that. Here's the other part. All my high school friends were either coming, going, or there in Vietnam. I felt really badly about it. I started uh, every game a junior year. Close friend of mine, Sandy, who is my wife of 55 years, and I told her I was going to play my last game and enlist in the Marine Corps. So found myself in the Marine Corps. Uh, it, we knew we were going to go into combat. I wanted to, frankly, be in the infantry. I wanted to see if I measured up. You know, in in football, as you know, let's say you're lining up for the kickoff. You're on the kickoff team, and there's one thing you don't want to do. You don't want to be skylarking, looking up in the stands, seeing if your girlfriend is there and thinking about your date that night as you go down the field kind of half-heartedly. Somebody's going to take you out of your cleats. So you need to go down, locked and loaded, and you need to hit somebody. Well, who was being proactive in Vietnam? Special operations were, were doing great uh, duty, and the premier spec ops unit in the Marine Corps was First Force Reconnaissance Company. It was the Marine Corps' version of SEALs or Army Delta, that kind of thing. Now it's called MARSOC. Six six-man teams operating long-range reconnaissance missions. We would be inserted way out. Uh, in our case, we would go as far as the Laotian border and uh, Triple Canopy Jungle, and we would be out there in their backyard to hopefully stealthily monitor traffic, see how many units are coming down, which ways, what kind of gear they have, and so forth. We would, in some cases, we would do direct action missions, which would be prisoner grabs, try and take people by force and haul them out, or uh, in some cases, ambushes. So that was the, the, the life that we lived, and it, it frankly defined me for the rest of my life. Love to hear the memories, and I know there's a special bond between especially this generation and that Vietnam generation, the GWAT men and women, have seen decades of fierce combat. I think it's nice that there is this kind of kinship between your generation and the modern generation. Can I ask about maybe a story behind, you know, one of your commendations, you know, the bronze or the silver? Yeah, there's there's a book by Bill Peters, who's a friend of mine. I'll say this in the most articulate way. One of the best bar fighters I ever knew in the Marine Corps who became a minister. And he wrote a book called uh, First Force Recon Sunrise at Midnight. He details a joint mission that he and I went on when we were out there to capture an NVA officer uh, out in Indian country or the jungle. And we we did. And then there was a, a real tough fight that involved, uh, evolved out of that, requiring uh, emergency extract, requiring that spy rig that we're going to get into. Thank God we had it, and we were able to get this get this guy. The one thing that I learned was the this uh, the fighting, the resistance that this NVA captain gave us physically, wrestling this guy down, getting him tied up, and then dragging him up this incline with uh, the enemy coming right behind us. This guy, God bless him. I, I wish, I wish, I don't know what happened to him, but Kenny and I talk about him all the time. If I could see him now, if he were around, I would say, brother, 
you're a heck of a warrior. In the end of it all, uh, Phil, he was out there doing his job and I was doing mine. It, it was touch and go for quite a while there. Uh, we got a, we got a spy rig in, dropped his strap down through the jungle, hooked him up to it, hooked us up to it, and we go vertical up and out to about 2,000 feet in the air. And uh, you're dangling by this nylon strap and he's, he's the very bottom and we hauled him out of there. I think the helicopter had about 84 holes in it, 84 bullet holes. And thank God it didn't hit any pressurized pneumatic line or anything like that. And it got us out of there and got us home. The spy rig. No sooner did you and I start corresponding on email than my good friend, Marine Corps veteran Joe Plensler, and even my colleague, who's a former ranger, uh, mm-hmm. Jack Murphy, mentioned the spy rig and just what a critical, what a critical evolution that was. And I briefly described it in the lead, you know, as like a chest harness. But talk to me about the evolution of how you guys were able to develop this piece of equipment or this technique that is used in special operations to this day. Sure. Before I got over there, uh, and we're talking about triple canopy jungle here, about inserting and extracting teams out where there's no sit-down zone for helicopters, by and large. All that they had was this jungle penetrator that was really tethered to the outside of the CH-46, up close behind the, the co-pilot up front, and it would drop down a three-pronged flange, and it was very slow, and you could only uh, put two people on there at a time, and it would ratchet it back up. All the while, that helicopter's up there hovering in Indian country, and every NVA that can hear that helicopter knows something's going on, and here they come. After a while... Uh, what happened is there was this wide aluminum ladder kind of a device that was about four, maybe four feet wide, and I'm going to say 120 feet uh, in length. It was heavy, and it would be uh, basically rolled up onto the ramp of the CH-46 helicopter and then tethered to the middle in this. Uh, there's a, a compartment that opens up in the middle of the helicopter. You can look through right out, right outside the floor, straight down called the hell hole and it would be tethered into the hell hole and as it would get out near the zone the crew chief would un would basically cut it loose and it would unfurl down now it was heavy so the pilot had to navigate into hopefully a area big enough so it could be dropped down and then the teams would take what we call our uh, swiss seats for repelling nylon a rope goes under your armpits it's got a, uh, a carabiner you snap that into one of the vertical aspects of that aluminum ladder, and then the team leader, in this case it would be me, and my radio operator would be the last two on the bottom, and I had direct contact with the pilot. I would tell them to lift, and they would go up, and they had to go straight up. And in many cases, while they're being shot at, there's the sitting duck. So The aluminum ladder, then, was a methodology of insert and extract. Because it was so cumbersome and because you still needed a good-sized hole in the canopy, if you will, to get get in and out of there, we had a commanding officer. His name is Roger Simmons. He and Gunnery Sergeant Trevathan were the two people that designed and thought of and created the spy rig. To this day... To my knowledge, I don't think he's ever been given credit anywhere for what he did. And I'm telling you, every single team was saved at least once, if not more, that without that, it was over. 
So God bless Roger Simmons. So it's nylon strap. The middle layer, they would uh, sew D-rings into that, and the D-rings would be spaced apart so you could be, you could have people hanging two, 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 two without anybody kicking each other in the face. They would be spaced up from the bottom. It was, uh, I think it was a 10-pound weight on it at the very end, and the, all the helicopter uh, crew chief would have to do once it was decided where, where the uh, spy rig was going to go down, open the hell hole, grab that 10-pound weight, throw it right down into the jungle, and the, the spy rig just trails right behind it. Uh, team leader pulls it out. We all had uh, rigs uh, we, we, uh, our, all our gear was, was strapped to, and we could loop in our legs. We had a D-ring behind the back of our neck. We could snap that into the D-ring on the spy rig, lift, and they would go up straight and then go, go straight up so the last guy could clear the top, the, the, the top of the jungle canopy, which was pretty high up there. You're up about 2,000 feet in the air. You're going about 85 knots, and you're cruising along. You look down. There's no safety net, that's for sure. It was almost like if you've ever seen a mother, a mother cat reach down and sort of grab her little kitten by the back of the neck and pull him straight up. It's kind of how I, how I sort of felt. The other way was, of course, uh, the hand of God pulling us out of there. That did not escape me every single time. If people tell you that they don't pray, call in combat. Uh, I don't think they're telling the truth, Phil. We were all praying, all praying a lot. That's the evolution of the spy rig, and it's still around today. That's amazing. Again, spy rig stands for Special Patrol Insertion and Extraction. Dangling from a thread from a helo, doing several knots through the open skies high above the jungle. Yeah, I can see why you prayed. <laughs> I mean, I'd be scared to death just in training, not to mention when it's a two-way range. Woo. All right. Yeah. Lessons learned. What lessons did you feel you immediately learned when you got out the service or, you know, from that Vietnam experience? Uh, know your business, first of all. Know it, know your job, what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, in this case, uh, close combat with the enemy. I, I had nothing but high regard and respect for the North Vietnamese Army uh, soldiers. Uh, Ho Chi Minh, they, they came down the Ho Chi Minh Trail hundreds of miles, pumping gear and so forth, just to get a chance to put us down and you know, LBJ sent me halfway around the world to put him down. And uh, these guys fought hard, professional uh, soldiers all the way. Uh, so respect them. And that happened early on. We had teams in contact fairly often. And I saw some stuff when I got there. And a good friend of mine who I'd gone through training with as an enlisted Marine uh, boot camp, we both wanted to be in force recon. If we got to Vietnam, John Slater, John and I uh, went through recon replacement school. John and I are hoping that if when we get to Vietnam, just maybe, that'll help us get into force recon, which is exactly what happened, by the way. The difference is John went to OCS several weeks before I did, um, and then I didn't. I lost track. When I showed up at Anwar Combat Base and reported into first force recon, a guy picked me up took me over to where the uh, team leader officer's uh, tent was, told me to drop my sea bag over in, in a cot over there. There was one empty cot. I said, oh, it's an empty cot over there. He said, yeah, that belonged to a guy that's not with us anymore. And I said, oh, did he rotate out? And he said, no, unfortunately, he was killed. I said, who was it? He said, John Slater. That was a wake-up call right then and there, right there. 
get ready. This is serious business. So uh, it got my attention right away. And, Phil, the the reason why John was killed is because of that daggone jungle penetrator. It, he he was the last, he and his, team, his assistant team leader were the last two guys of six under a heavy combat fire, under heavy enemy fire. And they were trying to drop that flange down and bring it back up and drop it down and bring it back up. And by the time the third pass came, they were under such fire. He and uh, Staff Sergeant Peters just jumped on there and stood on those flanges. But John was a much bigger guy and the weight was all on him. It was tilting. The helicopter went up and John had lost strength by then and, and he plummeted. The point here was uh, combat is a serious business and you need to respect your enemy. You need to know your job. You need to know your job. You need to know where everybody else in the team, where they're at and what they're supposed to be doing. We fight in the Marine Corps as a team. Here's the other thing. A Murphy's Law, which exists all over the world, certainly in the Navy and the Marine Corps, all the services, right? If it can be screwed up, it will be screwed up. Well, there's also a thing called O'Toole's Law, uh, Phil, and O'Toole's Law is that Murphy is an optimist. So anticipate that something is going to go wrong every time. And that way, if when it does, you, you're, you're prepared, you're ready to go. So you need to have an appreciation of that. You need to have contingency plans. What happens if this guy goes down? What happens if, uh, you know, we're detected early? What happens if they hit us from the rear? What happens if they hit us from the front? What happens when this guy is fighting for his life with Kenny and me and we're not going to be able to get everybody up that incline enough time? What are we going to do? We better call in an extract. We better get a spy rig in here. So the patrols would be four days long. And when you would come out, Phil, you would be mentally exhausted as well as physically uh, drained out too. We wouldn't talk on patrol. You couldn't talk. We're in their background. Thick jungle. You never knew sometimes how close you were to the enemy. So we functioned through a series of clicks of the tongue, hand signals, and so forth, never breaking uh, silence. You come out of that, and, and believe me, you're just, you feel like you've been pulled through a knothole backwards. Your emotions, your focus are heightened. To, to the maximum degree, you are focused hard for four days, hard. And, uh, but you do it. And so the lessons there were respect, uh, respect the environment you're in, know thy enemy and, res- and, and respect them, know your job and do it. Uh, n- no half-stepping. Uh, you know, when you're in leadership, you, you've got to, you've got to do more than those you lead and rightfully so. You need to set the example in all you do and you need to, Help them and encourage them in every way that you can. From the bottom of my heart, love the color and the detail you added to that because it is something that we're going to hear gets reinforced later in your life. And they are lessons that we should all be looking to implement in our own lives. But I'm still kind of blown away as, you know, not just a journalist, but also as a new founded entrepreneur myself, how many times these you know, these life lessons that I've heard from veterans like yourself, how essential and how easy it is to apply some of these lessons to business leadership. And you mentioned it also, parenthood. I mean, 
being the leader of the family tribe requires that same kind of acute mental discipline. And in a world where we are social and we're online and everyone's a keyboard warrior and people are mouthing off and saying this and saying that, and everyone looks for conflict and no one looks for responsibility. It's comforting to hear that these are the lessons you took away. And I can't wait to dive into how you apply them. Uh, let's jump forward now. You had an impressive post-military career as an attorney, and that right there could be the stopping point. That could make the, you know, the cherry on the Sunday, the end of a great memoir. But in some respects, you were just getting ready for another career of service, and that's helping out fellow veterans. So let's take some of those things we just spoke of, some of those leadership lessons. Talk to me about how you got involved in the Veterans Business Project, how it got formed up. And really, you know, your driving desire to help veterans become entrepreneurs. Uh, ultimately, uh, I was asked to come some years later to a university in Missouri. They wanted to stand up a veterans program. It's about seven miles from Whiteman Air Force Base, where they have the B-2 pilots and where they fly those drones, many of them. Halfway around the world, they're being flown in Missouri. Uh, they wanted to grow the, the program. I went out there and helped these veterans navigate through the educational experience coming off active duty. I got there. The support structure basically evolved down to making sure they got proper transfer credit for any collegiate classes they had before they got off active duty or military coursework that has college credit attached to it. And then lastly, helping them get jobs. So that boiled down to grabbing hands full of resumes, going to Kansas City and knocking on doors, trying to get these folks in front of CEO's attention so they could get a job. However, I had people coming into my office, Phil, frequently on nearly a daily basis, and the questions always revolve around, how do I get in business for myself? How would I do that? They knew I'd been in business. They wanted to find out, how do you do that? And so that led to a lot of discussions. I uh, dived into the GI Bill. I found out what the primary impediment is post-9-11, which turns out to be access to capital. It's hard for vendors to get loans. But I talked and I learned about the early GI Bill. And when it first came out in 1944, Phil, uh, they had three choices. Uh, one choice you and I did not have. The choices were, one, get a degree and then go get your job. Number two, get a trade and go get your job. Or three, for those folks of that era, if you wanted to buy business property, they called it, the Fed would be a 50% loan guarantor. The result of all that is in the nine years, the nine years following 1944, 49.7% of our veterans became small business owners, almost half. And in my hometown, around that town square, we had several businesses that had been founded and were run by veterans who came home to small-town America, got a loan from First National Bank there in Sullivan. After all, the bank knew you and your parents and your grandparents, shades of It's a Wonderful Life and George Bailey, the friendly uh, banker at the Savings and Loan. Of course you would get a loan. They knew you, character-based lending, and, and, and on they went. Post-9-11, Less than 5% of our veterans are in business for themselves, principally because they cannot get a loan. Now, we will find ways to lend college-bound teenagers tens of thousands of dollars 
with no credit score or collateral required. But a veteran, sorry, Charlie, get over in line there with the SBA. You're going to have to have a minimum 690 credit score. You're going to have to have a dollar's worth of collateral in your pocket for every four you want to borrow. You and I know some uh, some Seaman Deuce or a Marine Lance Corporal who's been manning a machine gun in combat. We'll let them bleed out for us, but we can't find a way to make this happen. So our nonprofit, we jumped right in the middle of that to address the lack of access to capital. And, Phil, I've knocked on doors all over Washington, D.C. I've talked to bankers high and low. Character-based lending is long gone. Now, little banks have been bought by bigger banks, and it's just about money. So uh, we started working on loan programs. As we're doing that, we start getting calls, and that leads us to where we're at now, Veteran Business Project. We've been around about 11 years. Early on, didn't take long, word got out. We start getting calls from baby boomers. Baby boomers out there are looking to sell their businesses, and typically, very typically, their children aren't interested. So they've heard about us, and they come to us asking, basically, can you get me an introduction to a veteran or two who we might be able to show our business to, and maybe they would want to buy our business from us. And we started down that path. Uh, Initially, we did a couple deals to see how they would go. And basically, what we have created, uh, there's eHarmony, if you wanted to get a date. Uh, For us, we're vHarmony. We match Veterans and military spouses who want to get into business with existing businesses looking to sell, not startups. And that's an important distinction, Phil. 85% of startups fail. The success rate with uh, businesses that already exist, they've got cash flows. They're in the black. You can look at their uh, tax records. You can see it all. Uh, obviously, why would you start a business if you could find one that already existed and was doing well? So. Uh, that is what we have done now over the years with Veteran Business Project and our vHarmony model. That's where we're at today. we got about 800 people in the pipeline at about any given time. And I love how you make the reference there. It's uh, it's not eHarmony for getting a date. It's vHarmony for That's connecting it. veterans with existing businesses. Can I ask just real quick, uh, what are some business categories that people have had success with uh, taking over? I mean, are we talking guys that have like local HVAC things or, are, you know, contractors that are looking to give their contracting business to, you know, somebody else? Or what are other examples of the types of businesses that veterans have overtaken? Almost any kind of small business venture you can imagine, we bumped up against it, including uh, small construction firms. Our typical deal is small business. So monetarily, uh, Phil, you're in the 250 to 450 range service businesses, uh, bookstores, restaurants. We've done restaurants, too. And that uh, I actually started one myself, by the way. Uh, oh, we're getting those. ready to get into that because I can't believe yeah. that leap of faith. But no, yeah. that's awesome that even food services included in some of these businesses that folks are, you know, overtaking. And, and, and I love the model because, you know, a retired or, or, a, or a soon to be retired aging individual that's run their business for decades with great success, you know, might really be looking forward to the time off. And if the sons and daughters go on to, you know, other career paths that, that are not relevant to the family business. What a great thing to match them with somebody not just that is interested in that, but a fellow veteran who can relate to that founder, that original owner on such a deep level. 
That's great. Now, let's talk veterans uh, aspiring to launch their own business. If a veteran just in general wanted to get into business, what are your suggestions for things that they need to have before getting knee-deep in the water and doing it? Well, the, the, right when veterans come to us, we get uh, anybody from basically tire kickers, people mm-hmm. looking or thinking about it all the way to we get some people come in and say, this is exactly what they want to do. Chicago Fireboat, look that one up. Two Navy Sea Dogs that bought this uh, retired uh, Chicago Fireboat, and they do cruises up the Chicago River and into Lake Michigan, and they're killing it. They're doing a great job. We get We get all the way to that kind of a deal. Also, if they're going to be startups, if they're going to do that, and, and DOD does talk about startups, so there are places you can go, business incubators is what they're typically called, like Bunker Labs, like the SBA Veteran Business Opportunity Centers, like the Syracuse EBV program, Entrepreneurship Boot Camp for Veterans. They're over. I mean, they're, they're out there like that. You need to be match ready. That means you need to have an understanding of operational pragmatics and running a business. Uh, we tell people, take a personal values uh, overview. Find out what your values are, what your passions are, and what you're good at. Let's figure out what you what matters to you. If we can find a business like that and roll that into to who you are, better chance of success. I've talked to people. Uh, I know the founder, uh, Todd Connor of, um, of Bunker Labs. These uh, incubators, you have people that come there, and these are startups. I would suggest you go to the SBA program or one of these other incubator programs, and they'll spend time helping you zero in on what your strengths and weaknesses are, what what really makes sense, what does not, and then you create a business plan around that, and then you then you go forward to also addressing the financing aspect. But just imagine, Phil, it's a lot harder to get a loan to get anybody interested if you don't have any experience in that particular business, as opposed to go in there and work a while. Get yourself a salary. We we do the matching up with the owner. The owner knows what's going on here. We tell the veteran, work in there and see if it's your cup of tea. We tell the owner, if it's not this veteran's cup of tea, for God's sakes, tell them. We don't want them to get in a bad deal that isn't isn't going to be really what they need for their future. Added added point, Phil, we tell veterans, if you're going to have a business of your own, grow that thing and then hire other veterans, inspire them, mentor them, help them grow, get the word out and help us create hope because hope is the last thing that goes before a veteran commits suicide. I just went public with our why recently on a telecast here in Chicago on Channel 9. I got to the why part. I said, I want to just start out and talk about why are we doing this? People talk about in Veteran Business Project. Why would you do this? You know, at age 70, anything, why would you do it? And I basically said, you know, veterans have a track record for being in business for themselves, going back to World War II and even beyond. But World War II established, number one, if, if veterans want to do this, and many, many do, of course they should have an opportunity to do that. Uh, history proves that they're good at it. And also, we know a nine-to-five job, Phil, is never going to do it for most veterans. The statistics are out there now. Veterans get off active duty. 85% don't make their first year employment anniversary. Second year, 65%. They're scanning and looking and scanning and looking, trying to figure out where do I fit? Where do I fit in? 
for a lot of people that seeing combat, fitting in ain't easy. Fitting in is not easy. So how about, though, doing what the World War II guys did, start your own business, then you're fitting in, you're there, hire these other veterans, guys just like you, guys and gals, inspire them, encourage them, mentor them, give them hope for the future. And if they lose hope, they have no fear of death, many of them. And so they'll make that sad decision, as illogical as it seems to us in that state of mind, to them, it can seem logical. And Mm. we have a practical methodology in Veteran Business Project that I can't give you statistics, Phil, but I'm confident, everybody on our team is confident, we've saved some lives along the way. If we save one, the whole drill has been worth it. I absolutely love the why, and it's one of the reasons I try to bring up careers and most especially entrepreneurship on this show. Uh, just a couple of weeks back for Thanksgiving, we celebrated by talking about uh, Arbo's Cheese Dip, which is founded by a former Black Hawk helicopter pilot who just couldn't find his way in the nine to five, didn't like the corporate job. And he even had a relatively decent corporate job, but it just sucked. He didn't like it. He wasn't with people that were his kindred spirits. He always had this dream of making his dad's cheese dip recipe and uh you know after some associations <laughs> with bunker labs yeah he was able to to rise devise and then scale and i think now he's in like over 20 states coming in 2024 he'll be in all walmarts i mean it's just really a incredible success story and it is that thing about like yes i i think veteran or not a veteran the economy right now is thirsting for people to have businesses people love local businesses you can find a niche the art of finding what people need in a certain zip code in a certain area has never died. And in fact, there's so many more zip codes being developed now that, you know, the burbs are sprawling. It is just, it's just the greatest time, I think, to be considering what the greatest generation did. And that's entrepreneurship and taking that great idea, that great skill you have and doing it. I also love how Veterans Business Project is aligning people with already existing businesses because that is, is a, is almost a guaranteed trajectory for flight. So love that. And I can't thank you enough for doing that. Let's end here because it's kind of where I teased at the beginning. This will be a delicious interview. (laughs) (laughs) On top of everything else you've accomplished now in life, you're a young man of 70 something (laughs) and you decide to open a diner But the restaurant category has to be one of the most challenging. And you create Rosie's Home Cooking, uh, a diner with a recognizable theme immediately. Tell me about Rosie's. Well, uh, as I said earlier, I'm a small town hick from Bounstate, Illinois, where every little town had a diner. You were never a stranger. You'd go in there, you'd have a good meal, get caught up in all the local news, which, of course, meant the gossip, you know, Harry got drunk and ran over the gas pump, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> so I wish I would have done this in 1983 when I left the Marine Corps. My wife and I did this about a year and five months ago. Rosie's is a small-town diner. It looks like diners used to look like in the 50s. Our food is outstanding. I pay the bills for the ingredients. I know they, it ought to be good. Uh, our services is on the money. And then we wanted to honor people. So we have, uh, my wife became an art teacher along the way. She asked me, who did, who did I want to honor there? 
said, well, I want to honor Rosie the Riveter. In my small town of Sullivan, Illinois, Phil, uh, during World War II, we had a Buster Brown shoe plant there in a town of 3,000 people. We had a lot of Rosies over there working in that plant. They weren't making Buster Brown shoes. They were making combat boots. Hundreds of thousands of women that went into the job market and did all sorts of things, and the war couldn't have been won without them. So I wanted to do that. wanted to honor uh, our first responders. So you'll see paintings in there going to police officers, firefighters. We have a missing man table over there. A flag is there folded in, in, in honor of John Slater, by the way. And we have the Rockwell painting of the flag. We have the Four Freedoms over there, and it is Americana uh, for sure. We get all sorts of people coming in there. Uh, we want to give them a good meal and a good experience and honor them. You know, I probably should have been slinging hash in my hometown, Phil, to begin with back in 1964, truth being. I am a small-town guy. I, that's all I am. That's all I'll ever be. I have never had such peace of mind. You become kind of like Joe, the bartender, uh, in, a, in a sense. You know, you know people. You meet their kids. You you, you meet the, You know what they're doing, what their jobs are. I introduce people, one to the other. In, in a little over a year, we've been voted the number one breakfast restaurant in Naperville, Illinois, and I, it's predominantly because of the strong support in the community and the surrounding communities towards a veteran-owned business. So one of the reasons why I did this, Phil, it didn't take any nudging. I've been thinking about this for a long time, but I talked to older veterans. I'm 78, and I talked to older veterans. And, you know, you look back, you get older, and you go, what in the heck was I thinking? Doggone it, I should have done that instead of this. And I tell them, and I've told many, I've said, look, it's we're going to be dead a long time. It's never too late. It's never too late. If you want to do something that fires you up in your heart, then let's talk. We'll see if we can find a way to get that done. So back to your leadership comment, need to lead by example. So. Rosie's Home Cooking exists in Naperville, Illinois, and I'm loving it. Uh, it. It really gives strength and meat to what we're doing with Veteran Business Project. It's really derivative of VBP. It's a living example that if I can do this, anybody can do this. Oh, such a great story. And I absolutely love what you're talking about there when you said if it if it thrills you, if it if it fills your heart with joy to do that thing, whether it's woodworking, whether it's a restaurant, whether it's this, whether it's that, um, I found joy most recently with an ice cream truck in my neighborhood. I got little kids, you know, kids in elementary and middle schools. I know all the kids in the neighborhood. I've learned in two years the names of neighbors I never knew. I've got friends that are, you know, in sixth grade and seventh grade, and 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 I say to myself all the time, I'm like, man. I wish I'd have done this 30 years ago because it brings me joy. That's the barometer right there. If that's going off in your head when you're in your garage tinkering or you're doing something that you think you could monetize, that's a sign. If it's bringing you joy in here and you love doing it, monetize that. Make that your business. And it is just tremendous that you can serve as this kind of inspiration. Again, young man in your seventh decade, but you make me feel like, hey, you know what? I still got another lifetime run at this now. I might be able to do something here. It's never too late. Uh, when I saw the clip on Fox there from the affiliate in Chicago, I was like, man, look at that. It's crowded. There's all these people there while you were taping and folks laughing and getting together every booth full. I mean, it's just really a tremendous sign that not only are you doing the right thing, community's loving it. 
And it leads me to my last question here. What's what's the best dish? If I'm at Rosie's Home Cooking down there in Naperville, uh, what do I really want to order? You're going to love our apple pancake. It's one of our centerpiece dishes. We have a German pancake. Our, our omelets are to die for. Absolutely. We bake them off. These things are fluffy and thick and high. Uh, our bacon, as I said before, I pay the bills. That bacon better be good. It better be good. Uh, our cook, Zeke, our lead cook, has been cooking for 37 years. He knows his stuff. Our potatoes are southern potatoes, not just these stringy hash browns. Uh, we take, uh, we slow boil our potatoes the night before and the skins, uh, fill. We cube them the morning of. We put a pound of butter on the grill. We melt that butter down and we put those potatoes right in there. We mix it all together with salt and pepper and onion. It's a great dish. Uh, by the way, uh, country boy that I am, I brought in bologna sandwich, meatloaf sandwich. We have grits, mess off, our days in the mess hall, of course. And uh, many veterans have been saying, where's the SOS? And you and I know what SOS is. It's <laughs> we, blank on a shingle. It's and on a so, shingle for sure. <laughs> we're coming with SOS, too. That'll be a complimentary dish for the veterans. Here you go. Chip beef on toast. Absolutely love it. Beneath the rosy Riveter logo there, classic silvery, shiny diner and, uh, just doing, doing great work there. Um, an absolute inspiration to talk to you really goes without say that I think, um, our best years are in front of us as veterans and especially to my GWAT generation out there. Yeah. You know, I just want you to hear that so desperately because it is so true. You can achieve and do great things rebranding yourself, re-identifying something that brings you joy and being able to run a business. You follow the right steps. You seek the right mentors, find something like Veterans Business Project. The sky's the limit and your best days are truly ahead, giving us all hope. I know in addition to the good meatloaf and that darn good sounding breakfast with apple pancakes, um, hope is what you're serving up each and every day when the doors open at Rosie's Home Cooking. So where do I get more information? Obviously, we can Google Rosie's Home Cooking if we're in the Chicagoland area. But uh, where do I get more information about the Veterans Business Project? Sure. We have a website, veteranbusinessprojectaltogether.org, veteranbusinessproject.org. When people sign up with us and they want to move forward, we assign them one-on-one a seasoned entrepreneur, Phil, and we take them through the entire process on a one-on-one basis all the way through to buy-sell. Many of our veterans, they want to keep that relationship going. These are experienced entrepreneurs. You're there to mentor people. They bounce ideas off these coaches, and it it can go on and on for as long as the coach and the veteran want to have that relationship. And they most always stick together and keep on going. Amen. Great stuff. Lynn Lauder from uh, the Jungles of Vietnam and Marine Corps. Force recon to, uh, you know, a life well lived and inspiring people to take the business journey. And in the meantime, feeding them at Rosie's Home Cooking. I doubt there's anything you can't do, Lynn. I really appreciate your time, sir. Great getting to know you today. Thanks, Phil. You and your family, come on out to Naperville. We'll feed you, buddy. I'll bring my appetite for sure. Thank you for this opportunity. It's been wonderful, Phil. Thank you for your encouragement. And thanks for what you're doing for our, our veterans, brother. And that's where we'll leave it for this week. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs, and I look forward to bringing you more stories from our military veterans on CBS Eye on Veterans.
Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.